we realize that the the real concern at the local and state level is, you know, there just is less sort of discussion. There's less, there, there are fewer ads, there's less content of any sort, which is why a single piece of deceptive content might be more potentially effective. So the recommendation is, you know, state and local governments should flood the zone, right, with good factual content uh, to help kind of potentially drown out or dilute you know, efforts by bad actors to introduce uh, deceptive content. I'm Quinta Jurassic, a senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 29th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you an episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the information ecosystem. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard a great deal over the last year about generative AI and how it's going to reshape various aspects of our society. That includes elections. With one year until the 2024 U.S. presidential election, we thought it would be a good time to step back and take a look at how generative AI might and might not make a difference when it comes to the political landscape. Luckily, friends of the pod Matt Peralt and Scott Bobo Brennan of the UNC Center on Technology Policy have a new report out on just that subject. Together with Eugenio Lostri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, I sat down with Matt and Scott to talk through the potential risks and benefits of generative AI when it comes to political advertising. Which concerns are overstated? And which are worth closer attention as we move toward 2024? How should policymakers respond to new uses of this technology in the context of elections? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 29th. Will generative AI reshape elections? To start off, can you just set the scene a little bit and tell us about this report that you've put out on generative AI in elections? So what we were trying to do with this report was explore the craft of translational policy development with respect to generative AI and political ads. And what I mean by that is that we looked at the harms associated with generative AI and political ads. I actually should say the alleged harms. So in the discourse around this new technology, what are people thinking the potential harmful use cases might be. And then we examine those harms in light of the academic literature. So what does the academic literature say about how these harms might manifest themselves and how harmful they might actually be? And then and then we try to develop a policy framework rooted not just in the conversation around the harms, but what the academic literature suggests about them. So we looked at four harms. The harms were um, scale, authenticity, personalization, and bias. And then we looked at some of the policy solutions that have been suggested in this area, like watermarks and disclaimers, for instance. And what we found on balance is that um, many of the harms have actually been overstated. The academic literature suggests that the harms in reality will not be as acute as the conversation around these issues suggests they might be. But that doesn't mean there aren't any harms. The the harms that we thought um, the literature suggests we should pay more attention to, not less, are the potential use of generative AI in down-ballot and smaller races, um, as well as the harms of generative AI related to bias, so its ability to exacerbate bias in our society. We found, now I'm turning to the intervention side, we found that the interventions that have been discussed, watermarks and disclaimers, are probably unlikely to be a silver bullet. So the recommendations that we have focus on a different set of potential policy interventions, and we group them into two primary categories. The, The first is 
that public policy should target electoral harms, not technologies. So we shouldn't just be concerned about the use of generative AI to do problematic things. We should be concerned about problematic things that might happen in our electoral process, regardless of the technology that might be used. And then the second recommendations are focused on learning. So how can we gather more data that will help to fill holes in the current research? Because our view is that even though the research right now points in a, in a certain direction, we think it's incomplete. In many areas, we think it's probably inconclusive in lots of areas. And so we think there's more learning to be done to inform governance in the future. So how speculative do you think all of this is? You know, I, I was following the election cycle in Argentina, and uh, there is an interesting New York Times article that focuses on the use of AI for political advertisement there. And it was clearly, you know, it was it, it featured in the election cycle. And I have to say, most of the content was clearly identified and identifiable as artificial. And it doesn't really seem... And I, I have to still see more analysis on this, but it doesn't seem like it had a particular influx on the decision that was made. So do you think that's the type of use cases that we can see for artificial intelligence? Or do you see an evolution in how AI can be applied to political advertisement? So honestly, I'm I'm not super familiar with uh, uh, the, the case in Argentina but what I can say is you're right that much of the discourse around the particular harms of generative AI and political ads is super speculative. And really, that's what we were addressing with the report. It was to try and bring some rigor to the conversation around what the harms may actually look like. So to, to kind of in addition to what Matt has already said about the report, I'll say we review some of the known examples of, of, of generative AI in political ads in the U.S. over the past year. And you're right that they're, they're uh, I don't want to say underwhelming, but uh, not likely to have had a huge impact. Uh, things like the Ron DeSantis campaign editing in uh, fighter jets behind him uh, when he's giving a campaign stump speech or, you know, uh, you know, some of the more, you know, you know, potentially kind of interesting ones were, um, again, the, I think it was a super PAC aligned with uh, DeSantis creating an image of Trump and Fauci, Anthony Fauci uh, hugging. Now, you know, but, but I think you're right to point out that you know, whether or not, you know, we might be, we might find some of these examples concerning. The next question is, well, what sort of impact will these uses likely have on, on the, on an election itself? And that's where, you know, rooted in our analysis of the existing literature on political ads and on misinformation, we concluded that, the literature seems to be suggesting that they're unlikely to make a huge difference in the the candidate that uh, that voters end up choosing because frankly misinformation and political ads for you know most of the time have limited impact on uh, on persuasion on on who we ultimately vote for Eugenia I think your your question is like in some in some ways that is the that is the question that animated our desire to do the report so Generative, where generative AI is today in terms of its use in the electoral process is not where it's going to be in tomorrow. And so we wanted to look at how do things look in 
an off-year election in 2023 with the idea that we should be better prepared going into 2024. And I think, as we've been discussing, it's really hard, I think, to come up with what we would conceive of as smart, data-driven, informed public policy going into 2024, given how much we don't know right now. There's an, an enormous amount that we don't know. But the idea is to, if policymakers were to implement some of the recommendations in the report, I do think that we would be better prepared going into 2024. That's primarily the set of recommendations that are focused on addressing electoral harms. And then, and then as Scott and I have both been describing, we also would be well better positioned, I think, to learn about the potential harms and about the value of various different potential interventions. I want to go back to the discussion of how much of a difference any of this makes to begin with, because Scott, you, you mentioned a really interesting part of your report, which has to do with the question of, you know, not only just does generative AI make a difference, but do political advertisements make a difference at all? And I think that it's it's very striking how you have this sort of literature review that essentially concludes nobody really knows if political ads make a difference or not, or to the extent that there is an answer, it seems like they might not make any difference. So could could you talk about that a little more and sort of sketch out how that explains how we should be thinking about generative AI? I mean, do, does that mean that the, the freak out is overstated? Sure. You know, I was surprised to 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 see uh, at the end of the, of the the our review of literature that first you know given you know uh, understanding that there are you know th- there's always sort of need for additional research that the kind of current sort of thinking on the impact that political ha- ads have on on persuasion is is essentially zero. Uh, there was a there's a great review piece that came out recently that looked across I think it was 49 different field studies and concluded that that you know I think they said something like you know our best estimate of the effects of campaign contact and advertising on Americans candidate Americans candidate choices in general elections is zero. You know that being said, right? I don't want to to just kind of suggest that political ads have no value or or any sort of impact at all, you know, there seems to be consensus that they are more effective at uh, influencing behavior. So turnout uh, for elections, uh, donations, signing up uh, for an email, right? So like giving your personal data to a campaign, all of th- these are things that, that political ads can have some sort of impact on. But but that's a that's a big deal, right? To to recognize that political ads are very unlikely to change who we vote for, and and given that, I think you know to to go back to your, your final question, yeah, I mean, I think some of the concerns around generative AI and political ads might be overstated if we recognize this. I think the data points in the direction that, as Scott said, some concerns are overstated, but others are understated. We didn't do like a media analysis to see how how press is covering misinformation in the election. But my guess is that the overwhelming volume of reporting is focused on the idea that the content moderation practices on X are going to have a dramatic effect on whether people prefer uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And I think the literature suggests very, very strongly that that is a dramatically overstated concern um, that if you're trying to persuade someone to move from voting for Biden for president to Trump for president, 
that is not that's not likely to happen uh, via political advertising. But but as as we said at the outset, that might be less true in smaller down ballot races. So the kinds of races that we that Scott and I were voting in just a few weeks ago in the 2023 election are more likely to be impacted probably than the presidential election. So when we, we were voting for mayor of Durham and Durham City Council, those are the kinds of races where there's going to be much, much less focus, much less media attention on the race, which means probably much less ability to detect misinformation campaigns. There's going to be a smaller volume of content. So the use of something like generative AI to increase the volume of problematic content might be more likely to have an effect. And so those are the kinds of things that we think where there should be more more focus, more media attention, and public policy should be directed at trying to address those kinds of harms. Yeah, I think that point about local races being different is really important. And I, it also makes me think about, you know, in the same way that uh, you see a lot of coverage, for example, of generative AI enabling pornographic and sort of violating deep fakes of, you know, people in high school who are being bullied by their peers. Um, that there's there's maybe obviously these are very different situations, but I do wonder whether there's kind of a similarity there insofar as the technology is more powerful when it's used against someone who has less sort of stature, less ability to push back. You know, if there is a deep fake of Biden saying something egregious or doing something egregious, he has a huge platform to get out there and say this didn't happen. Whereas if it's, you know, a kid in a high school or a local candidate for school board or something like that, people are less interested in finding out the truth. And there's less of a uh, avenue for that person who was targeted to kind of put the truth out there. And so in that way, um, it strikes me that the the impact can be so much greater in these sort of less prominent spaces. Yeah, that, seem, that seems exactly right to me. Yeah, I honestly don't have anything to add to that. I, I thought you summed up really well. So, yeah, no, I, mean, I think we're I think we're done here. I don't. I think we can just go <laughs> There's nothing more to say, Quinto. I mean, I think I think what you're part of what you're getting at. And apologies if I'm going a different direction rather than just restating. But I I think with any new technology, there are so many nuances that we don't know, and those nuances are so important. I think in, in figuring out what the right regulatory framework might be, and that's why we put so much emphasis on research in the report. With a with a real hope that that is not just a throwaway line, that that's not just perceived as a call to do nothing, but is really oriented around understanding how the technology creates benefits in the world and how it creates harm in the world. One example, I think, where we can see the train leaving the station, and I would say based on the past work that Scott and I have done, I wouldn't say I'm very optimistic about our ability, about the likelihood that we will study it, is the uh, idea of watermarks and disclaimers, which now two significant platforms have rolled out as their own policies. So Meta and Google both will have policies in the 2024 election that require some level of disclosures on uh, digitally altered uh, political ads. And the the thing that Scott and I would hope for is that we use the 2024 election to understand that intervention better, that we use it as an experiment to to understand what is the impact that that has on what people think. Does it result in a decrease in volume of misinformation or a decrease in how people perceive potentially false information that they see? Does it create competitive effects? Like, is that uh, is that an intervention that's easier for large companies to implement than small companies? And 
our fear, I think, is that we will go through this election cycle not learning that. So not unlocking and exploring some of these nuances that we hope will inform smarter public policy in the future. So I, I want to jump in and take us back a little bit to something that you were mentioning at the beginning. You set out four different categories of potential harms that could derive from the use of generative AI and political advertisements. They were scale, authenticity, personalization, and bias. And I think it, it's useful if you could walk us a little bit through you know, the literature that you did, how do you understand these harms and what we know and what we don't know yet about each specific one? So the four harms that we identify, so, you know, really come from, you know, a broad reading of the really the kind of public, uh, almost popular kind of discourse around, uh, around uh, generative AI and political ads. You know, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, we don't have much of a scholarly, you know, academic literature, you know, offering great empirical insight in, into this question just because it's so it's so new. But looking kind of broadly, you know, across the, you know, the, 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 the conversation, uh, we identified these four harms. And um, I, I guess I can start with uh, scale, right? So the idea that generative AI will make it, uh, you know, will lower the cost and the effort that go into producing deceptive content in political ads. Again, you know, while we don't have a great sort of sense of how much more will generative AI increase the, the quantity, the supply of false and deceptive content, we do have some literature first on what sort of impact do, you know, false ads or do ads or do false just false content have on voter choice we talked about that a few minutes ago but also you know what does the literature say about about repetition about uh, you know that, that we see in things like political ads you know you know as I sort of pointed to earlier again while the literature is sort of inconclusive here and recognizing that you know repetition is all like has been a very uh, uh, sort of key strategy for for uh, uh, both political advertisers and disinformation producers. That again, the literature kind of suggests that the the harm here might be somewhat over over overstated. S- sort of similar kind of conclusions around things like around authenticity, where the concern was: Will generative AI allow for you know, bad actors to create uh, more uh, sort of convincing, deceptive content. And and here, um, you know, I'll just point out that the sort of existing literature on visual mis- and disinformation really points out that, you know, despite deep fakes being around now for a few years, despite there being, you know, pretty great kind of methods of, of, of convincingly editing, you know, I- images and video for, for some years, most of the recent visual disinformation has used really sort of simple techniques, uh, uh, you know, cheap fakes rather than deep fakes. Uh, so for, you know, the best example of this, I think, is the like the Nancy Pelosi uh, video that was released uh, some years ago, where I think the video was just sort of slowed down to make it look like she was she was uh, slurring her speech. 
Um, so given that, right, we have to sort of separate out the, the, the questions about the, you know, how, how, how uh, uh, photorealistic is a, is a piece of deceptive content from the sort of impact that it will have. Uh, and then, um, you know, the, the other two harms, personalization. So we, we talk through the, we, we look at the literature on, on uh, what we know about uh, the effectiveness of ads as they're increasingly targeted to smaller groups. And then finally, uh, on, on bias. And, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I think this was one of the areas that, that uh, uh, I think, as Matt has already said, uh, really suggests that, that uh, the concern here has been maybe understated rather than overstated. It's, it's that we have a lot of good indication that a lot of the, the large language models have sort of built-in biases. And there's a real concern that when they're used to produce political ads, especially if it's the, the sort of like boilerplate political ad content, they very possibly could be replicating or amplifying those biases. So I wanted to ask about the scale question, because one of the arguments that I've seen about why the the sort of the ability of generative AI to allow, you know, campaigns to generate just more potentially false information, sort of a pushback against that is that the bottleneck for this kind of thing is at the level of distributing this material rather than generating it. And I've seen that argument made in context of, you know, thinking about state-run influence operations or disinformation campaigns that, you know, it's not that hard to come up with a, a lot of false material. The problem is, you know, building those networks um, to make sure that people actually see it rather than just kind of sending it out into the void. I'm curious what you think of that argument in connection with the the concerns about scale and whether it holds for, you know, political advertising conducted by a professional campaign as opposed to say a sort of covert social media influence effort. I mean, I think that's a that's a great question and a really good point. You know, it's it's uh, the first thing that came to mind for me was um, you know a lot of the early uh, Twitter studies on misinformation from you know right around 2016 2017. You know, we're much more interested at in, in, in sort of counting the the the, num- the amount of misinformation and disinformation on the platform rather than looking really closely at at how it was distributed at at at, at, at things like view- viewership. Um, I think that's a great point that that you know the thing that we really care about is what sort of impact you know do do falsehoods have on on voters and there is not much evidence that there is such a simple relationship of if you just produce more bad content that it will people will be persuaded by it. Absolutely. You know, I think you're right to point out that like there may be something slightly different between, you know, a a foreign influence operation and a political campaign, which does have a, a sort of more robust distribution network. But, you know, it's, I, I think it, it goes to, you know, you know, our just sort of like lack of understanding of what really a, you know, a massive campaign of deceptive content run by a major political campaign might actually look like. Uh, we just we just don't really know. So yeah, much much to sort of keep an eye on for the the next election. But Quinta, I think the I think the one key thing about your question is that it's sort of premised on the idea 
that someone seeing misinformation is going to result in a change in that person's viewpoint. And so, you know, as, as Scott said, like the literature just suggests that at a minimum, that's much more complicated than people think. And even potentially that like it really has very limited impact, at least in sort of isolated incidents. And so if that's the case, then then the difference between creation and distribution matters dramatically less. You know, I, I've been a little, a little worried that someone reading our report might believe that we are saying that misinformation never has impact on the world and misinformation can never do any harm. That's 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 false, right? Like we have examples of significant harm happening as a result of 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 uh, large disinformation or misinformation campaigns. So I think that the key is to try to understand well what you know what's different about those few examples that we have climate disinformation, you know, anti-vax movement, the the election denialism, you know, these are honestly sort of the outliers. These are the, the extreme cases. And to me, the lesson there is, you know, while the literature is pretty clear that a single piece of, of misinformation spread online probably has minimal impact on, on, you know, what someone thinks or what someone believes, a targeted multimodal, you know, across many different media campaign that it is deeply rooted in political ideology and identity can have a a pretty significant impact. But given that, what difference is it going to make uh, for, you know, a campaign within a campaign like that to, you know, within an effort like that to, to, create one, you know, a couple extra pieces of, of somewhat more realistic falsehoods. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what difference that will make. I think part of what Scott is getting at here is that if you look at the overwhelming majority of the nature of the dialogue around this issue, you, you're seeing things like, what is Facebook going to do about COVID misinformation content? Or what is X's position going to be on a particular kind of information that some people or maybe a lot of people think is like is really deeply problematic. And I think the implication of what Scott's saying is those questions just have much less impact than the policy debate suggests that they do because in order for there to be impact there has to be a lot of connection to other things throughout society. Uh, the presence of the information on other media or its connection to identity politics or what's happening in terms of an offline conversation. And I don't think that means we should bury our heads in the sand and not care about what Meta's content moderation practices are, or X's content moderation practices are. But in isolation, shifts to those practices are, I think the literature suggests, very unlikely to have a significant impact. That's where an enormous percentage of the policy conversation on misinformation is. And what Scott and I try to do in the report when we get into the recommendations is to sort of pivot the focus to things that I think have gotten much less attention, but that we see as really impactful. Like it continues to be the case and we are like continue to be shocked at this, but it continues to be the case that there is no federal law on voter suppression. It is not a violation of federal law to use deceptive practices in voting with the intent of suppressing the vote which is astonishing and I think is the kind of thing that is technology agnostic, can target a problem that a lot of people think is a problem and open up areas for law enforcement to actually take steps to address a real harm. 
Yeah, I guess the, the other thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I think there is a, a discussion to be had about the, the value of, of uh, partial solutions, uh, whether that's watermarking or X's, mod- you know, moderation or, or, or uh, uh, policies that, you know, well, it's true that like maybe, you know, what X decides to do as far as, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what content to keep up or take down is not going to solve the global problem of mis- and disinformation. Uh, it can make a sort of uh, small uh, difference, meaningful difference. And uh, well, of course, there's the concern, right, that like too much attention being given to, you know, in these in these kind of, you know, these the single kind of questions about platform policies is drawing attention away from the sort of like broader conversation that we could be having. You know, I, I, I do think that there might be some value. You know, I, I don't want to say that there's no value in 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 their solutions at all. And um, here I'm, um, I, my, my brain is telling me to stop talking, but I really want to talk about this Bertolt Brecht uh, uh, play uh, about uh, communist uh, rice planters, but um, actually I, I will stop. So, well, now I'm curious. <laughs> well, there, yeah, it's, um, there's this play by Bertolt Brecht um, where these two communists spreading the gospel of communism, going to the rice fields, I, I believe in, in China. And um, one of them, uh, they see the, the pain and toil of these rice workers. And uh, one of them, uh, basically, b- because the rice workers are like spending their days like knee deep in water, and one of them invents these uh, platform shoes, basically, or I think it just has, has the suggests that the workers can stand on these blocks, so that they don't have to wade in the water all day. And their communist masters end up, I think, punishing this uh, the, the, this this guy because by uh, um, lessening the the burden, the 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 suffering of the workers is going to delay their sort of awakening into you know class consciousness and will de- ultimately delay the the revolution. Let me ask about something that may be the equivalent of the of the platform shoes, um, which is that so, you know, without focusing too much on platforms, I do think it's worth talking a little bit about the role of the platforms since they are, you know, one of the big stakeholders here and about how they envision their responsibilities, particularly given that, you know, we've seen a recent change in Meta's policies around political ads um, in terms of allowing content about the supposed theft of the 2020 election. Um, A lot of different platforms are sort of figuring out where they stand on generative AI. Um, There's also this additional complication where a lot of platforms are kind of rolling back the resources that they're putting toward countering election misinformation. Um, And maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but I would be remiss in not mentioning the ongoing chaos at the the leadership in OpenAI, which seems to be in turmoil when it comes to, you know, thinking about how the company should prioritize profits over safety concerns. So I'm curious sort of how you see the role of companies in this landscape and how you understand these companies as kind of weighing the priorities and and where that fits into mitigating potential harm from generative AI in elections. So I don't know if it's a mistake to keep going with the Brett analogy, but, but I think it's actually sort of interesting in that it seems to show to me uh, the importance of cost-benefit analysis in evaluating various different solutions. And that, I think, is like an important and helpful framing 
for evaluating lots of different policy solutions in lots of different contexts, including not just government efforts to address policy issues, but also company efforts. So I think what we're what we're seeing here is um, in the absence of of federal law and largely in the absence of state law as well, uh, platforms are taking steps to try to address some of the alleged harms. I think the question is, do those interventions have benefits that outweigh costs? And that's something that we really don't know. Um, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's very interesting that Google and Meta both have approaches here that are focused on, that create the impression that that watermarks and disclaimers have value and have positive value. I don't know that that's definitively the case. Um, and as I was saying earlier in this conversation, like my my hope is that we use the 2024 election to learn about those things. So we learn about what are the benefits of of disclaimers? Uh, what are their costs? I hope that we hear from a range of stakeholders about that, and not just from Google and Meta, and that we understand more about the impact that they that those kinds of interventions might have on smaller companies, and and and, and that platforms share enough information or make enough information available so that credible third party researchers can evaluate this, and that we use the twenty twenty four election as a test of some of this and. And that we're able to learn enough from the 2024 election that when we go into the next one in 2025 and 2026 and 2028, that we will actually be able to make more informed decisions about watermarks and disclaimers. Well, since you brought up watermarks and disclaimers, you know, let's let's turn it to the executive order on AI that came up from, what was it, two weeks ago? So the executive order requires the Department of Commerce develop guidance for content authentication and watermarking to label AI-generated content. How effective do you see you know, these interventions, considering what you just said? And if you know, we're not sure about them, what else could the executive branch do at this point? Yeah, well, I think, you know, honestly, we, we don't know. You know as, as a starting point, I think having the executive, you know, that the executive order directs there to be guidance, more thought behind how we might actually go about trying to identify generated content is a really good thing. Uh, But the question of what effect labels on generated content might have on something like, you know, voters understanding that an ad is false, or is a, a piece of deceptive content. Um, yeah, we, we, we just don't really know. Uh, I think it, it's still too early to have good sort of empirical uh, data about, about the effectiveness of watermarks. We do, though, have some sort of empirical studies about, about the effectiveness of political disclaimers around, around like payment. So when an ad says, you know, this ad was paid for by, you know, this campaign or this, this political action committee. And, you know, well, that, literature is seems to suggest you know some studies suggest that you know have some impact other studies suggest that people don't really pay attention to them and they have no sort of real meaningful impact i i think that the takeaway there is just they're not going to be sort of silver bullets you know solutions that are going to to solve all of the problems about generated content i really like this provision of the executive order and I actually think it's similar to lots of provisions in the executive order, um, and I like the spirit of it, which is which is focused on trying to develop 
standards and best practices that would not be mandatory. There's no, there's no liability or penalty for companies that fail to implement the best practices. There's just an emphasis on trying to work hard to develop them. And I think that's, that's exactly right. I think there are sort of two, two things that I think are missing. So the first is kind of, as we're saying, you know, we're putting the emphasis on, well, do watermarks have value? And so if all you're doing in the executive order is, is focusing on standardization, you know, what, what should watermarking look like if it is implemented? You're kind of missing the key point, which is, does watermarking have value? And so I, I would have liked to see something in the executive order and, or in future government action that would do more formal research on that, that would, that would fund third-party researchers to evaluate those questions. So again, we could learn more going into the next election. The other thing, and it's maybe maybe this is like kind of an attenuated concern, um, Quinta, I think it's something that that you've thought and written about in the past, but I, I do have a little bit of a concern of moving in a homogenous direction with approaches to remedies here. And so I, I think we, this has kind of been true of the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight years of content moderation practices generally, which is that there there has been less diversity of approaches, which gives consumers fewer options in terms of being able to pick platforms based on having really divergent content moderation practices. So when I, I worked at on the public policy team at Meta, and when I started there, Facebook had a real name policy and Twitter did not. And I thought that diversity was really important. People who, who really wanted to be able to have a voice not in their real name had a choice in the market about, a, about the platform that they could use if they had that preference. And when I see a lot of emphasis on standardization and best practices. Again, I generally think that's a really good move, but I, I do have a little bit of concern that it cuts out some innovation at the edges that platforms might experiment with, and instead they just race to be in the pack. In, in some of your previous research, you've studied how state governments stepped into the void that was left by the federal government when it failed to move forward on tech policy. So when it comes to generative AI, are states doing something different? Are there particular concerns that they're trying to address? Or is it kind of the same discussion that we're seeing at the federal level? Yeah, that's a great question. A little of, a little of both. States are certainly not waiting for the federal government here. Um, one estimate I saw was that I think 125 bills were introduced this past year at the state level. That's just introduced. And I think that was, I cast a very wide net on, on what counts. And the, those proposals range pretty pretty widely from a, a couple of states, at least, like Massachusetts and California, introduced kind of comprehensive uh, regulation. It uh, didn't pass, right? But 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 introduced this, you know, that would cover a, a, a sort of a wide range of of different um, kind of aspects of AI regulation. And other states, you know, took a, a far more sort of targeted or, uh, or sector specific approach. And as far as, you know, looking at the, I think it's probably, I think it's somewhere in the like, you know, under, under two dozen bills that were actually passed. Most of them are that sort of very narrow uh, sector specific uh, regulation. Uh, there's a law in Georgia that passed that prohibits the use of AI for um, eye exams. Or there's a law in West Virginia that requires the use of AI for uh, state road inspections. So we, we see that. We also see a lot of efforts by states to just build up their capacity to, to study AI, to make better regulations, commissions, working groups, a state sort of audits. Um, so that's what we're seeing so far. 
So I want to make sure we give you an opportunity to talk more about some of your policy proposals for how we should handle this. And you've you've touched on a bunch of them over the course of this conversation, uh, but I want to give you space to turn back to those if you wanted to discuss in more detail or if there's anything we haven't touched on that you want to make sure we discuss. Sure, I can I can name one. So, um, you know, going back to the concern around local and state elections and how generative AI and political ads might be more effective at the state and local level. We picked up this idea from uh, Steve Bannon, right, who once described his his approach as flooding the zone with shit, right? Flooding the zone with, with problematic, confusing content. And we realized that the, the real concern at the local and state level is, you know, there just is less sort of discussion. There's less there, there are fewer ads, there's less content of any sort, which is why a single piece of deceptive content might be more potentially effective. So the recommendation is, you know, state and local governments should flood the zone, right, with good factual content uh, to help kind of potentially drown out or dilute, you know, efforts by bad actors to introduce uh, deceptive content. And I can add uh, one as well. So in the... Um targeting electoral harms section, we have one recommendation that focuses on allocating additional funding for law enforcement to enforce existing civil rights law that protects the electoral process. So this was one of the things that that we developed before seeing the White House's executive order. And the executive order doesn't exactly do this. I don't think it allocates additional funding, but it does call for coordination led by the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department. I actually worked in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division one summer in law school, and the the criminal section is filled with devoted attorneys who wake up every day trying to figure out how to build cases to prosecute the country's civil rights law and ensure that it is enforced and hold perpetrators, violators of civil rights law to account. And that's an example, I think, of where existing existing law, you, you don't need new law here, but where existing law can really be a powerful tool to address what you know Scott and I have, have, have said repeatedly really is, uh, we think, a concern associated with generative AI that is supported in the literature, and, and that's the issue of bias. And so I think it's important to remember that attorneys don't just get handed cases like out of thin air and all and just take those cases that they're handed to to the to the courthouse to prosecute them they need to build cases they need to identify facts um, that are a violation of law they need to make those make make that connection you know what is the factual record that supports uh, a violation of civil rights law and that takes skill and expertise and it's not just skill and expertise around the civil rights law which obviously current attorneys clearly clearly are skilled in that area but it's also it will also require deep skills and understanding about the technology and so allocating additional funding that can build up that expertise and really provide the technical support to people to build cases to enforce existing civil rights law we think is really critical yeah this is this is an issue that uh, we've we've talked about uh, separately but I, I do think it's it's crucial there's some indication that the Justice Department may be beginning to take this kind of, you know, question of, of social media and voter access more seriously. There's a recent prosecution uh, and conviction of a t- pro-Trump Twitter troll who directed voters to uh, text their vote in, so essentially encouraging them not to vote in a way that actually counted in 2016 under uh, 
criminal statute that dates back to Reconstruction. And so I do wonder um, if that may turn out to be a, a model for what the Justice Department could do if it has the funding and if that uh, conviction holds up on appeal, which is an open question. But to, to close out, I want to kind of look forward um, and ask you both what your predictions are. It's the million dollar question for whether generative AI is going to create chaos for the US in 2024 and for other elections around the world that are coming up. So maybe I can give the optimistic view and Scott can jump in either with optimism or pessimism, but but my sense is he may have a different perspective here. So I I think generative AI is going to be a powerful tool for advancing human rights in the world um, and, and that on balance, it will advance human rights more than it contracts them. So one thing I think we actually didn't touch on that we that we do include in the report is a discussion of of generative AI's benefits and how it can actually reduce barriers to entry and barriers to speech for people who might historically have not been able to speak in elections. So I think going forward, there certainly will be chaos. There certainly will be examples that we point to of the use of these tools in nefarious and problematic ways. But often in the discussion of them, we sort of focus on numerators rather than the relationship between numerators and denominators. So we we identify harmful use cases, but we don't really put them in context. And my guess is that um, that these tools will be will be used powerfully by a range of different types of people to explain themselves and to express their viewpoints and that on balance, it will be positive. I probably on balance, I guess am somewhat uh, more pessimistic about the direction of travel on the policy side. I, I do think the executive order is a really positive step forward. I think it call it, it calls for the kinds of like deep thinking and learning that I think we really would hope to see and that, that we express optimism about in this report. But my fear is that we will see examples of how this technology is used in the 2024 election. And we will see examples of either from the government side or from the platform side of attempts to implement interventions to constrain those harms. And yet we will be here if we do this again, Quinta and Eugenia in a year and you say, well, what did we learn in this election? What you know? What do we know now that we didn't know a year ago? My fear is that we won't have a lot we'll be able to say in response to that. I guess I'm both optimistic and and a bit pessimistic, both. So, you know, I, I echo, you know, I agree with Matt on on a lot of what he said. I, I am quite optimistic that just with the amount of a, of attention and interest and thought that's going into uh, to these problems, to AI regulation more generally, um, I think it's a really good thing. I, I, I like that there are, you know, unending, you know, Senate hearings and uh, about, about AI and, and uh, just every day, new, new research. I, I think I, I am a little less optimistic, uh, you know, than, than Matt about the benefits of, of generative AI in, in, in elections to this, I, I am concerned. I'm not concerned because of, I believe that we're going to see a whole lot of false deceptive content that's going to make people vote for candidates that they wouldn't otherwise vote for. I'm worried that it will just exacerbate a an existing trend, a, a, a radical decline in trust that whether or not generative AI or falsehoods or political ads have any sort of real impact on what we believe, people believe that it does. And people believe that it is a big problem. And that is concerning to me. We 
know that trust across in across institutions is falling and, and continues to fall every year. I, I don't see how this yeah, cannot, you know, worsen the problem. You know, um, you know, there's the, there's the, uh, the concept of the liar's dividend, you know, the way that bad actors can use things, you know, can use AI or generative AI to, to claim that um, real, you know, uh, uh, evidence of their wrongdoings are, is fake, right? And when there's a, a sort of low trust environment, I think it's 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 easier for that that sort of thing to happen. So, yeah. So so I guess I guess a, a, a bit both, right? A, a bit optimistic about at least that these problems are getting a lot of attention. A bit pessimistic though about about what the future will bring. Well, let's let's end there on that uh, mixed note of optimism and pessimism. Matt Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, a Lawfare podcast series on the information ecosystem. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noah Mosband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Gann. As always, thanks for listening.